I was thinking about dad stories. I was thinking about how much I, uh, I love my kids. And I had a, uh, a funny dad story from a while back. And <clears throat> when Mason was first born, so Mason's my second child, we had Braden, and it was a five-year gap between Braden and Mason. And uh, so Braden was my whole world for about five years in terms of kids. And then suddenly there were two. And I remember the first time we, I was in the car alone with just Braden and Mason. We were at the mall. And uh, we drove there with my wife and we dropped her off and she ran into the mall to get something. And it was easier to just let her run into the mall and get something and to get all the kids out because Mason was so young and go into the mall. What I didn't process in my mind was there was no way that her running into the mall was going to be quick. So I'm sitting in the car for an extended period of time with these two little ones. And I have, all right, can I just, can we, we're, we're all a little bit crazy, right? I'm, I'm sitting there just thinking about how wild it is that I have two kids. I'm responsible for twice as many humans on this planet as I was before. And I had this bizarre, totally creepy thought. So go with me just where I, where I went. But I had this thought. I said, okay, what if someone came, what if two people came to each side of the car and each grabbed one of my kids and tried to run in opposite directions? What would I do? <laughs> Nightmare scenario, right? I'm a new dad. I'm sleep deprived, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what would I do? And I remember having this emotional, like, melt moment, realizing how much I loved both of my kids and also realizing that I needed a firearm <laughs> to defend my family, right? Like, I had both thoughts simultaneously. I was like, wow. And, and here was this thing that happened because when... When Brayden was born, my first kid, I didn't suddenly love my wife less and take half my love and give it to Brayden. And when Mason was born, I didn't suddenly take half the love that I had for Brayden and give it to Mason. And now I love Brayden half as much as before. And then when Mia was born, my daughter, I didn't suddenly, you know what happened somehow supernaturally? I didn't know I had more capacity to love. I didn't know that existed in me, but somehow my love multiplied each time. And those crazy neurotic dad thoughts crept in. And don't even get me started on the stories that started going through my head once my daughter was born. All my hair fell out at that moment. But it's true. Thinking about a God's fatherly, fatherly love. And I remember after that moment, sitting in the car, locking the doors, Looking around like a hawk, everybody who walked by in the parking lot while I was in charge of this new little life and this five-year-old life. I remember thinking, first of all, that Braden was going to have to take some kind of self-defense classes soon because he was five. And I was like, how old is old enough for an eye gouge? <laughs> At least slow him down, Braden, and I'll help you. But I remember starting to think about God and just how many kids he has. And thinking about how, as my love multiplied with each new Child, I wonder what God's love does for each and every one of us. And I started thinking, wow, God's way bigger than I thought. And it was funny because it took me to kid number two to get that picture of the amount of love it must take to love all of us again and again. And to not say, I'm going to take half my love and give it over here and then half it and take it over here. But to say, no, I just love you fully. I love you completely. I love you totally. You know, in 1 John... John talks about God's love being perfect. That word for perfect, it just means complete and whole, not lacking anything. As a matter of fact, John says that's the kind of love that can 
literally drive out fear. And there's some incredible things about God's love that just strike me. I was thinking about how God's love doesn't demand anything in return. And I was thinking, you know, before I knew God and his perfect father's love, all the love I experienced, I felt like demanded something in return. All the love I experienced, I always thought I had to perform. I had to be good enough. I had to excel. And that's how people would like me. That's how people would love me. Suddenly I interacted with this creator of the universe who was like, I love you just because you're you. And it demanded nothing in return. It was unfathomable to me. I was thinking about how God can love everyone that way. There's literally no room for God, and we're going to get into this today in James, for God to show favoritism, there's just no way. Because for him to show favoritism, we'd have to be able to do something to increase or decrease his love. We'd have to somehow be able to perform our way into his love, and it doesn't do that, you see, because a true father's love, a true father's love, it doesn't love you for what you can do for me. Thinking about my kids in the backseat of my car, there was not much they could do for me. I mean, five in a few weeks. What could they really do for me? I mean, one of them could talk at least. The other one didn't bring much to the table. (laughs) Yeah, he was adorable. That was about it. He didn't sleep a lot. He didn't even have that going for him. (laughs) But a true father's love doesn't love for what you can do for me. And as I began thinking about God and thinking about my kids, I thought, man, I'm so glad that we serve a God who loves us, not just because of what we can do for him, not just because we can perform. Now, James runs into this, and we've been walking through the book of James. If, if you are here last week, we took a little break, and we talked about the Holy Land, and that was, a, that was a lot of fun. But we've been walking through the book of James and this idea of life hacks. And the life hack today is pretty, pretty simple, pretty basic, but it's just don't play favorites. Don't play favorites. That's a life hack. You want your life to go well? Don't play favorites. If you do that, it'll go well for you. So James chapter 2, James has a pretty unique perspective on a father's love and a pretty unique perspective on playing favorites. And if you're with us a few weeks ago, I talked about James's life a lot, so I won't do too much of that. But to just catch you up, James is the brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus. They got different dads. But uh, he has a pretty unique take on a father's love, and he has a pretty unique take on this idea of a relationship with Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about James is he wasn't a follower of Jesus or a believer in Jesus early on. He was not an early adapter. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he actually tried to stop Jesus from talking at one point, assuming really that Jesus was embarrassing himself and the family. And I don't know if your big brother tried to tell everyone he was God if you would be okay with that or if you'd try to stop him. You'd probably do what I would do. Nope. <laughs> He's a little crazy. But something happens in James's life between that moment and this moment. You see, he witnesses the events of the cross and he sees his brother on the other side of the resurrection and everything changes. At this point, when James writes this letter, he's actually a pastor now. He's leading the church in Jerusalem right in the heart of the Jewish population. He's in Jerusalem and he's leading the church there. And he has become incredibly respected. As a matter of fact, he's so respected that Paul at multiple occasions goes and spends time with him. We talked about that. He was a pastor. He gave care and he shepherded people. And he writes this letter 
in James of practical things to tell church folks to go do. Now, what's important to recognize is he's writing to church folks here. And, and as we get to James chapter two, first word he's gonna say is brothers. And so I want you to hear this. This is something he's trying to get into the hearts and minds of church folks. So if you consider yourself a church folk, he's talking to us. He's concerned about this. If you're someone and you're like, ah, I'm not totally sure I consider myself a church folk, you'll love this because you'll see some things that we as church folk are supposed to do. And some of the things that you see that maybe we don't do well, you'll go, oh, that's where my tension has been. But here's what the scripture really does say. So in James chapter two, he's talking about something real important. He's saying, hey, these Jewish brothers of mine specifically who are there in Jerusalem with him, but believers in general, one of the problems that we run into is we very naturally drift into patterns of picking and choosing favorites and treating people differently based on exterior things. Now, can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother and having to get over the idea that some people might be feeling like, someone else is the favorite <laughs> and then writing a letter to people who are followers of Jesus saying, Hey, don't let this creep in. Don't let this creep in. Cause this can be dangerous. It's funny how <clears throat> in the Jewish culture at that time, a lot of their entire identity was wrapped in the idea of they were God's chosen people. They were favorites. God initiated his plan for salvation by picking a group of people. And so it was very easy for them to drift into a mentality that says, hey, we're the favorites. And within this group of favorites, there's super favorites. And you can tell who super favorites are because they've been blessed on earth more than others. And that mentality and mindset began to creep into the church. And James said, ah, hold on a second. That's not how we do things here. And that just is not the case with God. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in James chapter two. And he says something amazing. He says, my brothers, he's talking to church folks, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, in case you were wondering, he's talking to church folks. Don't show favoritism. It's pretty black and white. Don't show favoritism. Hey, Pastor Mike, I have favorites. Okay. Don't show favoritism. Hey, Pastor Mike, I really like, insert this group of people, this particular people, whatever, more than anybody else. Okay, don't show favoritism. <laughs> Some versions say partiality. Don't be partial. Now, favoritism is an interesting thing because favoritism kind of puts a positive spin, but the other side of the coin, favoritism, the other side of the coin is discrimination. And James is setting up an argument here within the church saying, don't play favorites because by default, when you play favorites, you know what you actually do? You discriminate. You say someone else is less worthy, less important, less significant, has less value because this person to me has more. By default, when you show favoritism, you're discriminating. And James is saying, God doesn't do that. And if we're supposed to be like God, you and I, we don't do that either. We're not supposed to do that either pretty funny. I was thinking about this idea of favoritism. In just a moment, we're going to get into kind of some real practical things. James is really practical, and I love it. But I was thinking about this. Think about this for a second. I heard this illustration, and it really, really stuck with me. Have you ever bought a ticket to a ball game? Anyone here ever bought a ticket? How about a concert? 
something like that, a sporting event, concert event. You bought a ticket before. You got, have you ever got online and looked at the seats and like you scrolled your mouse click through or whatever it is, and as you got closer and closer to the front, you saw the price go up and up and up and up and up, right? And there's a certain point where you're scrolling where you stop, right? And you're like, that's the threshold. And then you start scrolling back thinking, what's your threshold the other direction? Like, what's the farthest away I want to be and still be there or whatever, right? <laughs> Earlier this year, opening day of the, uh, of the Mariners game, I was blessed with some uh, tickets to the Mariners game, and I had some of the best seats that I'd ever been at. Now, I didn't pay for these seats. They were provided as a, as a blessing. They passed from pastor to pastor to me uh, until, <laughs> until somebody could use them. And uh, I was able to take, uh, take Donald, and we went down there, and, and we got to the game. And it was pretty funny because we start walking and we're walking towards the, towards the home plate and we're looking at our tickets and we're looking at the rows. We're looking at, look at the rows. No, no, no. And pretty soon we're all the way down where we're like row 12 or something, 14, right, right behind home plate. Got a foul ball. First foul ball to Mariner game was pretty amazing. I was on TV for like an eighth of a second. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty amazing. But, uh, but I remember having these amazing seats and you could like, I mean, you could see everything down there. It was just incredible. And I was like, wow, there's a certain group of people. This is where they watch games normally. That's amazing. I don't know how much the seat was, but I'd never pay it to be that low. You know, now I had seen a couple A's games there, but that's because there was nobody in the stadium. And after like the fourth inning, you could just walk down to the dugout basically and sit with the players. I didn't care. But uh, no, not quite, not quite, not quite. But you get the, the distinction. I paid an $8 seat and I sat in like a $100 seat by the time the game was over. But all that to say, there's, there's a different like rating scale there. And so sometimes you're Oh, I totally got lost there. <laughs> Sometimes, where was that? Oh yeah, we were, we were scrolling for seats, right? So you're scrolling through and there's like a threshold. And if you cross over that threshold, you're like, ah, and then you go back to where you feel comfortable. And then you buy the seat, click and you buy it if you're gonna go. And when you show up at the game or the concert or the event or whatever it is, and you go and you find your seat and you sit down, do you ever look down towards the front and think, man, those guys don't deserve those seats, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, yeah. Most of us, though, we're like, yeah, you know, they paid for them, whatever. Whatever. I'm happy I'm here. I'm where I want to be. I want you to think for just a second. Can you imagine if you were looking for a church in the community and you went online, ccplup.com, you saw us, and it said, first time visitor, click here, click. And it says, hey, choose your seat. And you start scrolling through, looking for a seat. And pretty soon you see that the seats in the front, there's a fee to sit in the front and you click on that seat that tells you X dollar amount, X number, whatever, and you can reserve seat. Would you go to a church that did that? You wouldn't. Why is it that you know instinctively that that wouldn't work? That that would, something about you immediately rejects that idea, right? Because no way would I go to a church that did that, that was like that. How about this? Imagine you were going home for the holidays and grandma was having a family gathering at Christmas time. And you walk in the door and there's a seating chart at the table. And she ranks you. And, and maybe she ranks you, maybe the way she ranks you, she goes, okay, you can sit closer to the head of the table based on your gross income for last year. And she ranks you. Or she says, oh, based on GPA. Highest GPA gets to sit the closest to grandma at Christmas, right? It's absurd. Why do you know that's absurd? Internally, you know that's absurd, but you would do it at a concert in a heartbeat. 
You would be fine at a ball game. It's totally appropriate in that venue. Why is it inappropriate in these other venues? Because we understand that when family gets together, we don't play favorites. We don't play favorites. We understand that when the body gets together, we're not supposed to. Where do we get that from? We get that from James. We get that from James. Because he was in a culture, in a place, where that kind of thinking, click and save your seat, had permeated even the church world. That it was very appropriate and normal in their context to save and reserve the best places at the family gatherings for people who were affluent or more entitled or had better last names or more pure ethnicity in their mind or whatever it is. And so James is going to challenge that right here. And that's kind of the journey we're going on. So verse two. So suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He's got bling on, right? He rocks in, the clock is hanging from his thing. It's got, it's encrusted with that. No, that doesn't work here. Okay, whatever it is, right? And it says, and a poor man with shabby clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, come here, there's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit in the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's a funny thing when church people get starstruck. It's a funny thing. Ever been starstruck? I remember a few years back, I was, uh, I was at home <clears throat> for the holidays. It was Thanksgiving time. I was with Christine, and we stopped by her parents' work, and they, worked, uh, they were butchers, um, but they worked in a real affluent community. It was like one of those markets where it's like $11 for an apple or something ridiculous like that, one of those ritzy markets, right? And uh, <laughs> there were butchers there, and, and so we're standing over there uh, in the uh, in. I don't know, the kind of the front area, talking to her uh, stepdad and making plans for the holidays. And he goes, psst, psst, he starts pointing. I'm like, what? He goes, psst, pointing, right? Like the veins in his neck are sticking up. And he's like, look over here, look over here. You know, he's doing, look over here, look over here. He's trying to be discreet, right? And look, and I look over and there's a guy, he's kind of short and he's got his back to me, his jeans and a black shirt and his sleeves rolled up and he's got, I think tats or something like that. He's got a little basket and he's picking out a pie. And I was like, What? Look at this guy. And the guy turns around, and it's the lead singer from Green Day. Right? And he's just hanging out, buying a pie for Thanksgiving, because he's got a family just like everybody else. And his wife probably said, hey, go get me a pie for Thanksgiving. And so he got up, went, got his pie. Now, I was in that generation where, you know, that was kind of like, uh, they were just a little bit too late for me to be super starstruck. But, but it was pretty crazy to just be like, wow. This guy fills arenas. He was still, I don't know if they're still playing gigs or not. I'm not a Green Day guy, but, but I was like, that's pretty crazy. He's just sitting there buying a pie. And I, and I was thinking about this idea that we get starstruck sometimes. And I remember uh, Chris, my, my stepfather-in-law, uh, was just like, was like, you gotta play it cool because they come here all the time. You know, local celebrities, you know, it's $11 buying apples, so they come here. They live in the Oakland Hills. This is like the spot. And so you can't say anything or whatever because they'll stop coming here. So he was trying to be really discreet. But it's funny because someone like that walks in 
And we have a couple different reactions. It's like, oh, shh, play it cool, play it cool, play it cool, play it cool. You know, and you're trying to get a selfie like, around the corner. And it's like the back of his head and a red basket and a pie's in there. And you're trying to tell everybody, that's the lead singer from Green Day. And they're like, whatever. But, uh, but we have this tendency when someone has celebrity or wealth or influence or something like that to try to, to instinctively, naturally treat them differently than everyone else. We've been preconditioned by society that these people have more important opinions. So we hear from on the news, so celebrity opinion about something. And so often I just go, why do we care what this person thinks about this particular issue? But for some reason, because they have influence or sing well or act well or something, own a company, we think, well, their opinion must be weighted and more significant. And we, we do this thing in our culture all of the time. And James says, don't let that creep into your family's time. Don't let that creep into this place. Don't let that mentality that some people have a higher opinion, a more important value creep in. And I love the picture he says, he says, yeah, they got gold rings. They're dressed to the nines. They walk in and immediately you're like, hey, get out of your seat. We got this guy's coming here. And we tell that other person who maybe doesn't present as well, hey, you stand in the back or sit at my feet. Now, sit at my feet is an insult in this culture because you got to remember, they walked from place to place in sandals and shared the roads with wildlife and animals. And feet were not the thing you wanted to be seated next to in this culture. And basically, they would say, well, you can, <laughs> I need a footrest for this wealthy person so you can sit at their feet. And can you imagine that? Imagine the message that that was sending about value, the picture it was sending about who we are as followers of Jesus. And James is like, get that out of here. Your dad does not play favorites. He just doesn't. That's not how it works. Verse five, James says, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. What's the insult here? Oh, you put them on the floor. You made them stand in the back. God never uses the same status things that we use. Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the what? The servant of all. And he's saying, you have been in comfortable position insulting the poor. Now, the poor in Jesus' time were always there, but Jesus addressed them multiple times. He talked about the poor, and there was a reason why he addressed them. He, he said things like that, that led us to believe and understand that even though they weren't experiencing their full reward here, they had the same opportunity as everyone else, and their reward was great, just like your reward and my reward is great. I've been pretty poor before. I'm pretty glad that God doesn't love me less based on my stuff. And I feel like God loves me more when I have a little more. It's not how that works. We can't use the same criteria that the world uses to determine value. He says, you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? He's talking about a very specific issue right there. 
He's saying, you've insulted the poor. Why have you insulted the poor? Because in that time, in that culture, the rich were more educated, had better access to lawyers, and they were doing manipulative type things, just like has happened throughout all of time. The haves get more and the have-nots get exploited more and more. And <laughs> James is saying, there's groups of people in our own culture, in our own place, he's talking about, who are literally using their wealth, their education, their privilege to manipulate, to steal from those that already have not very much. And then those people walk into the church and they see the same people who are exploiting them in the community being afforded a seat of honor and they're being told to sit at that person's feet. What an insult in the kingdom of God. What an insult in the family to affirm behavior that's exploitive, manipulative, and damaging. Is he saying that all wealthy shouldn't be wealthy? No, he's not. He's saying you still just can't play favorites. This is the place we don't do that. This is the place where that's not okay. Stop modeling the world's model of value because we understand that each and every one of us has value. Verse seven, are they not the ones slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? <laughs> James is saying, you want so badly to be loved and accepted by influential people that you make exception for them. That's the world's model of treating people. That's the way the world gains favor with people. He says, you don't do that when the family gets together. When it's Christmas and we're at grandma's house, we're all the same. Now, I may know I'm the favorite. <laughs> Come on now. We all believe we're the favorite because grandma's doing her job. Verse 8. But if you really kept the royal law that's found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing what's right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of bringing up, breaking all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you commit adultery but don't commit murder, you still become a lawbreaker. What is he saying? He's saying, some of you think this isn't a big deal. You don't think it's a big deal. Hey, I'm just playing favorites. I naturally have an affinity towards this particular group anyways. And he's saying, you are disregarding the heart and the law of God, thinking that this thing isn't a big deal. And it is. It's a big deal. When you discriminate, when you treat people like less than, it's a big deal. Where does he get this from? Leviticus 19, 15 says, do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. I love this. He says, don't be especially partial to the, to the poor either. Don't assume they get more love and more respect because of their other position, just like the other group doesn't get more love or more respect. Now, he's only talking about poor and richer, but you can take this to every lane. He says, hey, don't play favorites. Don't do it. Just judge your neighbor fairly. But here's the thing, and we know this is true. We all drift towards people who are like us. It's just easier to do life with people who are in similar circles as us. And so here's James, and he's just in a, in a, in a fatherly way, in a pastoral way, trying to paint a picture for us. And he's saying, hey, 
don't do this. And whenever a dad says don't do something, there's always a reason, right? Come on, dads, you know this. Whenever we say don't do something, there's always a reason, but sometimes it's a lot of work to explain the reason. So the best reason is always because I said so, right? But because I said so isn't just because I said so. Usually because I said so is something much bigger and deeper than that, that I just don't have the energy to explain in this moment, right? Don't run in traffic. Why? Because I said so, right? There's a reason, but if I have to sit down and explain to you, well, here's what happens. You run in traffic, you get hit by a car, then your mom's upset at me because I didn't watch you. So now I have to get upset and then we got to take you to the hospital. Hope you, do, you, know, you make it. Now I got medical bills. Mom's still upset at me. And so, right, that's a long conversation to have with like a five-year-old. So because I said so works, just don't do it. But James understands that he's talking to a group of people who are having a hard time separating their worlds and recognizing that the way things tend to happen out in the world's view, the way that the system is set up is that people naturally cling together in social circles that they identify with. If they're in a certain, you know, educational circle, they hang out with people in those same educational circles. If they're in a certain financial circle, they hang out with people in that financial circle. If they're in a certain ethnic circle, they tend to hang out in a group that's similar in their ethnic circle. That people naturally kind of flock to these circles of relationship with people that they have things in common with. And that somehow, once they come into this place, and they recognize they're part, all part of the family of God, we have to break that mentality up in this place. That we don't model the world. That's why he says, you know, the world's doing it this way. You've insulted these other people without even realizing it because you have modeled a system that divides and doesn't bring people together. And that isn't the heart of God. You know, I heard about a, a survey and uh, it, was a, it was a national survey, and, and uh, the heart of the survey is why have, why have people left the church or won't give the church a chance? And it was like top 10 reasons. And reason number six was that the church was too discriminatory. And I was just shocked because that's just not true. It's not the heart of God. Of all the places that should be not discriminatory, it's this place of all the places where people should feel like they're treated equal. It should be this place. Of all the places where people should feel like they have value, that they have uh, uh, the same value as absolutely everyone else, it should be this place. So James explains, hey, don't do that. And he's about to explain the why. It's funny because I think we all learned early on how to, how to try to win at things. I don't know if you, anymore, it's like kids don't go outside and just play like they used to. But I used to go outside and play. And we used to just go to the park and neighborhood kids would come from all over the place. And we'd find whatever ball that we had, football, soccer ball, baseball, whatever we had. And we'd just break into teams and play a game. We didn't need like adults to set it up for us, right? We didn't have to schedule play dates. We just went to the park and we played. And we did stuff. And here's how every team would go. The two toughest kids would be captains. They'd argue over who got the first pick, right? If you were really a good negotiator and you lost, you'd say, okay, you get the first pick, I get the next two, right? To try to balance it out. None of you were negotiators like that. Okay, if you had the master negotiator, then you would do that. You'd break the teams up. 
And the goal was to pick the best team you could. And you didn't care if you hurt someone's feelings. You didn't care if they got left out. There were no parents to make you be fair or anything, right? If you're playing tackle football, that, that one's not getting picked until last. And we'll let you hike it. But you're not getting a ball the whole time. It's like no mercy, right? Unless it's like a sneak play, right? But that's just what you did. That's how the world, we learn at an early age. That's how you pick teams. I'm trying to think of a millennial uh, model of that. It's like when you're on a video game and you look at their records, right? And you're like, you go based on, I don't know, whatever ratio of win. No, okay, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> oh, man, I love millennials. I do. I don't discriminate. I want them. I'll make fun of every group. <laughs> but when we were kids, we learned that we were supposed to divide into teams that we think could win. Yet James says, can you, ima can you imagine if God picked his team that way? If he looked at external things that we look at when we're picking our teams and decided that's how he's going to pick his team. If he said, I'm going to take the wealthiest, Bill Gates would be a first round pick, right? Taking that guy with most influence. I'm taking this wealthiest guy. I'm taking, you know, the most skilled, the most charismatic, the best singer. I'm taking all of the things, right? He would just psh, psh, hand plug. How many of us would not make the team? Oh, there's not like a, there's a pretty broad market of five, nine pudgy balding guys out there. I don't know how long until I got picked on the team. But God doesn't pick the team that way. And I'm so glad he didn't pick his team the way we learned to try to pick a team. You know, 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, and I love this because it's just raw and honest and Paul's blunt and it's beautiful. And he just says, brothers, talking to us, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Doesn't mean that you can't be any of these things. It's just not many of you were. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. What is Paul trying to articulate? God's looking at something that we don't look at. God's value system isn't the same as our value system. God's love and his perfect father's love extends beyond some of the things that sometimes we land at. When God chose us, he wasn't looking for externals. He was looking at internals. He was measuring the heart. He was measuring our response to him. It's pretty interesting when we display things like racism, favoritism, only wanting to be around people like ourselves, we're literally in an anti-gospel state, an anti-Bible state. We're showing that we don't understand what God did for us. When God looked down from heaven and said, I'm gonna get into your mess. I'm gonna send my son into your world and I'm gonna get into the mess and pay the price for you. He didn't look and say, okay, here's my first round draft picks. It's just not how he did it. What's interesting about the Bible is the Bible is really the place that really truly teaches that we're equal. It's the place that truly teaches that we're equal. Here's some fascinating things. The Bible tells us that everyone is equally made in the image of God. As you get into the scriptures, each and every one of us is made in the image of God, male and female, in the image of God. You don't, 
You don't see this picture of Jesus treating people as though anyone were not in the image of God. As a matter of fact, he destroyed cultural norms. Think of the way he interacted with women. Destroying cultural norms, treating everyone like they had value. Literally, it could have been considered scandalous to have women on his team, to teach women, to educate them and train them and work with them. And who were the ones that had the courage to go find the empty tomb? The first ones to give a report that God had raised from the dead? It was women. He was destroying cultural norms and establishing that everyone was equally made in the image of God. The Bible's all about equal. You know, the second thing we need to recognize is the Bible lets us know that everyone's equally sinful. All have sinned and fall short. James just painted a picture. If you broke some part of the law, you broke all of the law. There was an illustration I heard was kind of funny. The guy was golfing and uh, he, uh, he hooks one, snap hook, off the first tee and he hears the crash of a window and there's a house back there. Now, why anybody buys a house in the slice or hook area, especially around the first tee, is an absurd thing. I mean, unless you want to just build that thing uh, like, a, like a Fort Knox, like just walls of steel. So the guy goes over because he wants to do the right thing and, you know, make it right and go talk to the person and sees the homeowner outside and they're upset because, you know, you look and there's this beautiful, large bay window and it has this golf ball size hole in it. And he goes, man, I got to make this right. And the guy goes, yeah, you do. And he goes, here you go. He gives him 20 bucks. <laughs> and I was like, what are you thinking, 20 bucks? He goes, well, the, the hole's only this big. <laughs> what's, the give, what's the takeaway? He broke the whole window. Well, I, I didn't break all the law. I just a little temper problem or a little forgiveness issue or a little whatever it is. The point is he broke the window. We all have sinned. We're all equally in the same boat. And what's beautiful is that everyone who knows Jesus is equally forgiven. And his forgiveness is made available equally to everyone. The Bible is the greatest picture of equality that we could ever have. The Christian faith is all about Equality. When, when Christian churches started springing up in communities all across the, the, early, the early world, there was some fascinating cultural shifts that began to happen because people began to treat other people like they had value. Slaves were, were, were leading discussions and Bible studies, and there were people getting saved and going to house churches, and slaves were leading the message. They were like elders in the church, but positionally no authority in the community. That's amazing. Everywhere the gospel spread, there was educational reform. Why? So everyone could know the truth of God's love. Suddenly, women were getting educated all over the place in communities that had never done that before. Why? Because the Bible paints a picture that everyone is made equally in the image of God. Everyone has equally tanked it. And everyone who knows Jesus is equally forgiven. That's incredible. Wealthy poor, slave, free, Jewish, Gentile, black, white, you name it. When you ever find yourself in an environment, people say they're part of the family of God, and there's anyone that they put on the list who's not equal. And this, this is just free advice from some guy you heard one time, run like the wind. 
get away from that. That is not the heart of God. That is not the heart of God. That is not the heart of God. That is not the truth of his word. The Bible has some pretty amazing stories of what happens when things like parents start playing favorites. Things go bad really fast in the Bible as soon as parents start playing favorites. God paints a picture of that as a father. He doesn't play favorites. Can you imagine as a father in your home playing favorites with your kids? Just the damage that that would do. You got the best GPA. You get a date night with dad. Nobody else gets time ever, right? You're the tallest. Congratulations, dad loves you the most. You kidding me? And my kids are getting bigger now. There's not much that they can bring to the table. Kind of like what Marshall shared earlier. I love their heart and I love them, but they don't add significant like income to the house or anything. Like, they, don't, they don't do any of those things. I just love them. Some of them are less expensive, and maybe I love them for that. Eat a little less. Dads don't play favorites. Your father in heaven doesn't play favorites. I heard a pastor say this, and I thought it was really good. Don't let your preferences become your prejudices. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Don't let your preferences become your prejudices. James is teaching us something that's incredibly unique about the family of God. We've all experienced this incredible father's love, even though we were equally a mess. We've all experienced this forgiveness, even though we were equally in need. Our God doesn't play favorites. This is a picture of a true father's love. Let me finish the passage for you. We're almost done. James chapter 2, verse 12. James says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. How powerful is that? You behave like you're gonna be judged by the law that released freedom in you and releases it in everyone else because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful and mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, Jesus taught us that the kingdom of heaven was like this. This, this lines up with Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 18, he, he gave a parable of this unmerciful servant. And you've heard the story. But the short version of the story, the Pastor Mike version, since I want to respect time, is simply this. There was a man and he owned a huge debt. You can crank that number up as high as you want to crank it. Let's put it in the billions. It was a debt he could never repay in the natural. He was over leveraged and the only possible ending for him was either the debt was forgiven or he was imprisoned for the rest of his life. Possibly his entire family imprisoned because he wasn't able to pay his debt. And he shows up before the person to whom that debt is owned and throws himself at the mercy of that person. And that person shows him mercy and erases the debt. He experiences an incredible true level of mercy in his life. And Jesus says that same man leaves that place and on the street he runs into someone who owns him a relatively small debt in the hundreds. And Jesus says that man ran to that person, grabbed him by the throat. Want to illustrate that? No. <laughs> Maximus. Grabs him by the throat. 
says, pay me what you owe me. And Jesus uses this illustration to paint this picture of how inconceivable it is for someone who's experienced the incredible mercy, the undeserved mercy of our Father in heaven to then turn around and treat someone else who our Father also loves like they don't equally and also deserve mercy for their situation. He says, that doesn't make sense in the kingdom of God at all. The end of that story doesn't end well for that first guy, just by the way. You should go read it in Matthew chapter 18. Why? Because God doesn't love any of his kids any less. And he wants us to remember how much we're loved. And for that mercy that we experience in love to change every interaction with every other human we see. And that's the story of the gospel. James is essentially saying, you cannot reconcile having experienced that mercy and not giving that mercy to everybody else you see. It's not reconcilable. So the father's advice, not that just don't do that, but the why is because of what you received. And what was made available for you. Now, if you've been with me for any amount of time, you know, and I start talking about the Father's love for us, I just, I'm done. Because I lived a life that didn't experience that for a long time. And that was the thing. That was the missing piece. That was the aha moment. That was the breakthrough place of my life and my journey with Jesus was this idea that I belonged and that I was loved. And I thank God for a little church and a little group of people who I walked into that environment, this little arrogant, Puerto Rican, angry, bursting at the seams with testosterone and whatever else, didn't know what to do with myself, punk. And a group of people didn't shoot me to the back of the room, didn't try to tell me I was all messed up, just said, hey, come be with us. Someone said, hey, come sit by me. You belong here. Someone said, hey, you're welcome. I didn't have anything to offer. No one knew there was any potential or what any of those kinds of things. Nothing else. It was probably come sit by me so make sure this kid doesn't steal anything, break anything, run off with one of our girls, whatever it is. I don't know what the agenda was, but what it looked like was we just love you and you're welcome here. Change the course of my destiny in my life. Maybe Something like that changed the course of your destiny and your life. And maybe in a place like that, sitting next to a person like you might change the course and the destiny of somebody else's life. That's why this is the place where we don't show favoritism. That's why on Father's Day, we're talking about a father's love because we experienced it, because we know it. Now, listen, if you asked any of my kids, they'll probably say that they're my favorite. And the answer is, yeah, it's good. I ask them all the time, hey, who does daddy love? Me. And they'll fight, me, me. They'll yell at me, me. That's right. That's the right answer. And when you say it, that's the right answer. 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 When you say, who does your father love? When you say, me, that's the right answer. Because we've experienced that, because we know that, we can give that away. Would you stand with me? 
this is what a father's love can do for us. It can change our destinies. It can change our hearts. It can change our attitudes, even about the Niners. <laughs> it can change everything. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray specifically for the fathers, but I'm just going to pray for each of us. Not just that we would experience that love, but that we'd be ambassadors of it. Because it doesn't discriminate. And it's not just fathers that model this love. It's mothers and it's aunts and it's uncles and it's cousins and it's brothers and it's sisters and it's strangers. We all were given it so we can model it. So Father, in this place, in this moment, I'm just incredibly aware of the value you assign to each and every one of us the value that would allow you to send your one and only son to pay the price for us. The value that would say you love us completely. You love all of us. And you know the mess that we sometimes and often are that we're in or that we've just come through or we're about to go in and you still love us with a perfect father's love. That's incredible. That you know even our thoughts, let alone our actions, but even our thoughts and you still love us is incredible. And I pray in the midst of that, there's a transformation that happens when we get our hearts and minds around just how much we're loved by you because that mercy does triumph over judgment. And I just pray in our lives, would we be beacons of your love? I pray for environments that we go into that are outside of our normal circles. It's not just people who look like us, sound like us, dress like us, live where we live. Would you help us to always see the incredible value in every soul and every human that you love? No matter what their background is, no matter what their issue is. God, it's so easy to make snap judgments. We all make snap judgments. I mean, we can't, it's just human nature. But we're not limited to human nature. We have your heart and access to your love. And help us to just give that away. And can you imagine if we could just do that? If we did that in here, that would be amazing. Can you imagine if we did that in our neighborhood? We did that at our work. We did that in our schools. If we were just agents of that kind of love, the, the potential for life-giving transformation that could happen everywhere we go. Help us to just be that. God, I pray for fathers, especially that are in here today. I pray for those of us that carry a father wound and I don't have to explain what that is because if you carry one, you know. Would you be our father in ways that are just beyond our ever, every expectation? And I pray for the fathers and the dads in here today. Would you just bless them, fill their tanks, help them to have rest and respite and to feel joy and to feel known. I pray for places where there's relational barriers and bridges and all the kinds of just mess of this world. Would we just love the way you love and with that love, just cross every bridge, I pray. Do the thing that only you can do, God. Restore, revive, renew. We love you. We thank you. God, we just say happy Father's Day from all your kids. In Jesus' name, amen.